Welcome to the New Books Network. Um, as it turns out, I then, um, and then it ended up starting up a small... Uh, <laughs> well, I'm sure we start that again. <laughs> it was pretty good while it lasted. <laughs> uh, should, we, should we take that again? Or? Yeah, we can take it again. Okay, great. This is Mikey McGovern, and you're listening to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast on the New Books Network. From laboratories, they're maybe, you know, doing some kind of self-observation, or they... One doesn't usually get shushed while doing an interview, but this one arose from somewhat extraordinary circumstances. Back in what we might call the great before, December of 2019 to be precise, I caught Michael Rossi, author of The Republic of Color, published in 2019 by the University of Chicago Press, in the middle of a busy day for both of us at the New York Public Library. We wandered the resonant halls of this gorgeous institution and ended up perched on a rail just outside of the MYPL picture collection, a resource of photographs and illustrations catalogued by subject dating back to 1915. Apparently, our conversation got a bit too exciting for the patrons and librarian. This wasn't the first unconventional interview I've done. My first podcast was with Jeremy Green, just minutes before the History of Science Society's 2014 meeting in Chicago kicked off. But needless to say, the recording presented a number of difficulties. Pandemic anxiety gave way to endless procrastination as days, nights, even weeks bled together. The same has been true for many. Nevertheless, not long after I renewed my vow to tackle this recording, with its many starts, stops, and interruptions, Rossi saved me with an email suggesting we try again. This will be my last NBN interview, so it bears a certain weight that has made it difficult for me to finish. But here goes. Michael Rossi is an associate professor of history at the University of Chicago and studies the history of the body and the human sciences that attempt to make sense of it. The Republic of Color, Science, Perception, and the Making of Modern America is a history of how the standardization of color became an object of social reform in industrializing America, a project that required new articulations of the ideal political subject. Not unlike the plural American Republic it describes, it is a book that will appeal to many different constituencies. Asthetes will learn how the development of color systems was tied to projects for social reform and the cultivation of a particular kind of citizen. Historians of science will find an account bridging high intellectual history with the practical arts, and a cast of characters ranging from physicists to artists, logicians to toy manufacturers to eugenicists, and nearly everyone in between. So what led Rossi to work on the history of color? As it turns out, he tried to escape from his background in graphic design to work on other topics, but his practice left an indelible mark as he realized the history of science could explain how theories of color 
have become embedded into the tools used by designers. One answer, and this would be the sort of high-minded answer, um, would have to do with what I realize in, in retrospect is a long-standing interest of mine uh, in the ways in which you know, aesthetic truths bolster scientific truths and vice versa, uh, and the ways in which different arrangements of truth-telling vary within and among different communities or different groups. Um, and color makes a great platform for thinking about this. Um, but the more grounded answer is that um, prior to undertaking research in the history of science, um, and in fact through, through much of graduate school, I worked as a graphic designer. Um, and so, um, you know, and as a graphic designer, I had worked at various magazines, uh, a couple of advertising firms. I'd done some uh, public, uh, some, some contracting work for the New York City Department of Public Health, uh, doing public health posters. And so I was very interested in the ways in, sort of the ways in which uh, science and um, science anesthesis and, and aesthetics um, sort of mixed to produce different kinds of different statements of truth. Um, and so, so I was doing that, and then I went to graduate school. And so initially, when I arrived at MIT, this is where I did my PhD research, um, I initially had this concept of, of running as far away from matters of design, art, and aesthetics as possible. So I wanted to leave it all behind. Um, and so for a while, I wrote about model whales, like models, like whales, like the creatures that swim in the ocean. Um, and I conceived of and wrote a proposal for a dissertation about the history of crowds. Um, but all through this research uh, and all through this sort of proposal process, uh, I was also working as a graphic designer. Um, and as your, your listeners might be familiar, when you work as a graphic design designer, you use these uh, design programs, desktop publishing programs like Photoshop. Uh, and these programs present many different overlapping models of color. So color spaces, they're called. Um, you know, like different ways of formulating color, whether along axes of, say, uh, hue, saturation, and brightness, or mixtures of uh, red, blue, and green um, um, elements, I guess. Um, and, so, um, and so I got curious about these color spaces, you know, what they meant um, and where they came from, because it's a, it's a very strange thing to do when, when one takes a step back. You know, the idea of, of modeling color uh, began to seem increasingly strange to me. Um, and it turns out that desktop publishing applications like Photoshop, for instance, um, are in fact sort of these... Uh, sophisticated archives of 19th century color theories, uh, each with subtly different understandings of what color was and what color is, um, but also correspondingly of what people are or, or what it means to be, uh, what it means to see color and what kind of, what kind of being is the um, intended sort of uh, user or, or, um, or basis of these kinds of models. Um, and so from, from that observation, it was, it was difficult to turn back and I did not succeed in my goal of, uh, of getting far away from, from design and color. Now, standards are something that I've talked about a lot on this podcast in recent years, and I wanted to know more about how Rossi characterizes attempts to standardize color. To what extent can standard colors be said to exist? Who regulates them and how? The matter turned on how to solve problems of communication and intelligibility most direct answer to this question of whether standardized colors exist or to what extent they exist is my, my initial answer would be to say like first you know no they don't exist or at least not in the way that say a, I don't know, a standard gauge of railroad rails exists or a, I guess a standard threading scheme for uh, for metric bolts exists or something like this um, 
So you know, the very subjectivity of color, right? The fact that a given color varies um, according to its environment, you know, the person that's viewing it, uh, the ambient light under which it's viewed, you know, perhaps the material that is used to instantiate that color uh, in the world. All this makes it uh, impossible to standardize color, even in the very local ways that one might, for instance, standardize a unit of measure. Um, and I should say that this is also a design, uh, this is a, an observation that um, I, I came to uh, from design work in which, you know, for instance, um, you know, I worked for a company that did uh, signage for a, a clothing manufacturer. And we used to, we would get these, these big signs in, these big proofs of signs. And we would, you know, four grown adults would, would sort of circle these enormous signs, you know, trying to, trying to figure out whether the color red was exactly the color red that this company, that, you know, that belonged on this company's logo. And, you know, um, and of course this is, it's, it's some, something of a, um, an impossible task because, you know, as the, you know, as the sun would change outside, the color red would change and, you know, we'd sort of be circling this thing and scratching our heads. And, um, and of course this was all composed using these standards of, uh, using standard colors that were promulgated by, uh, different companies. So in the first sense, I would say like my first reaction is to say, no, standard colors don't exist. Um, but second, I think perhaps more interestingly, um, as I discussed at length in, in the book, uh, people did, of course, and do standardize colors. So in this sense, they, there are booklets of standardized colors and standardized colored systems. Um, and in the United States, anyway, this was an endeavor that had real traction, uh, especially between 1890 and 1920. Uh, so during this time period, we see all sorts of schemes for standardizing colors according to uh, what were interpreted as the values of science. Um, and some of these schemes persist today. So the, the Munsell color system, for, for instance, um, was devised around 1905 by A.H. Uh, Munsell, who was an art instructor and inventor. Um, and it is currently still in use in various industrial applications. Um, you know, I also write about the, the Ridgeway color system. This was originally a color system used to standardize the observation of colors in birds. Um, but it's still used in, in uh, I believe, in stamp collecting and mycology and uh, fields like this. Um, and so these systems, uh, you know, to get to your to, to get to your point about nature, you know, um, and and whether these systems exist in nature, um, even at the time, these systems were always suspect from a purely scientific angle, but they all work provisionally. Uh, so in that sense, it's possible to standardize color. Um, and I guess the third way, and this maybe is the most most interesting way to answer the question, um, is that. Um, and much of the book sort of deals with this question, is that it's not so much whether uh, these colors, whether these colors or any colors actually were or are standardized or actually you know, are standardized according to some sort of standard of science, um, but rather what really sort of fascinated me was the fantasy that standardizing suggested, um, which was this fantasy of, of knowability, of accountability, of a sort of bureaucracy of the senses, as Caroline Jones has said, uh, has called it, you know, being able to overcome uh, overcome through science the, the what we're seeing as the vagaries of subjective human experience. Um, so, for instance, um, my book spends a while on various groups of people who try to standardize not just colors, but color terminology, right? Um, and there's a very interesting sort of philosophical move that they make between the idea that speaking about colors and seeing colors is, in fact, sort of coterminous. So the idea is that if one calls something, even something, especially something as basic as a color, by an erroneous or inaccurate name, then one will have erroneous or inaccurate sensations. And from erroneous or inaccurate sensations, one will have erroneous ideas and then erroneous reasoning. 
And eventually, given enough of this kind of error-ridden thinking, you know, society will descend into some kind of decadent collapse based upon the inarticulability of, of basic sensations. Um, and so that's the sort of that's the, the underlying fantasy behind you know, the ability to tell someone that a particular color red is the color red that they are, they are or, or are not using. The book focuses on the Gilded Age, a period of industrialization and intellectual ferment in the United States. I asked Rossi how the interplay of materials and ideas fits into his narrative. One way to approach color is, or one thing that color gives one is a, um, is a really sort of tight interdigitation between these two things, right? So um, I think by the by the nature of the way that it was conceived by researchers working in color science, and I should say that color science in this period um, was this very sort of sprawling and polyglot endeavor. So it involved people like art teachers, but also physiologists and physicians and anthropologists and psychologists and physicists, right? So a lot of people were, were trying to articulate what color is and what it means to see. Um, and so within sort of big ideas about, you know, what humankind should be like and, 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 how, and how society should be ordered, right? How to order a modern society. Um, one finds researchers working with questions like, well, um, you know, how do I, um, you know, how do I measure something like a, the, the response of, uh, you know, an individual's, uh, an individual's eye to light or something like that. And that necessitates all sorts of, um, and that necessitates dipping into the material cultures of the United States at this point, you know, things like, um, the necessitates dipping into things like, um, you know, like the kinds of papers that were available to be made, or uh, that involves researchers, you know, going on, uh, going on outings, you know, writing, you know, going on outings for one another to the department store to find, you know, examples of particular colors of fabric. Right. And of course, you know, the, the need to go to a department you know, to, before you can go to a department store, one needs to have a department store, an entity like a department store. Um, and so what I, what I discovered and what one finds uh, in this book is that there is this, um, there's just sort of a concatenation of effects, right? So uh, there's, of course, the, uh, in the case of the department store, for instance, I, there's, one, there's one episode in which a, one researcher writes to another and says, could you go and find this color called Isabel? Like, I don't, you know, I'm, I've read about this color called Isabel, but I don't know what it is. Can you, can you find an example for me? And so, um, you know, the, his, his, colleague goes out, his colleague lives near a department store and, um, and goes out and says, well, you know, I went to this big department store and, uh, Isabel wasn't there. And I asked the store clerks and they couldn't tell me what Isabel was. And this was seen as, as sort of a, a proof that Isabel was, uh, was rare or, or perhaps, you know, um, um, or, you know, or rare or at least fugitive in, in, uh, in a sense that, you know, in, in a sense that it wasn't necessarily important for this other scientist to know. And so, in all of this, one sees that, you know, the role of sort of, I guess, validation, if you want, was uh, encompassed not just by the instruments of the scientists, but also by the role of the department store, right? If, if clerks at a department store don't know what a color is, then, you know, then science doesn't necessarily have to be responsible for it either. Um, so that's just one way in which you know, the, the material cultures of, uh, of turn of the century or 19th century uh, America could sort of worm their way rather quickly into... Um, uh, into uh, into sort of high theory about you know 
the composition of color and what color is and things like that. Now, had Rossi's study been about the broader history of physiological optics, perhaps in a scientific vacuum, it might be populated with figures like the Prussian physicist and physician Hermann von Helmholtz, who helped originate the trichromatic theory of color. So I asked him more about how the American developments he charts out tell us more about the overall history of color science. Yeah, so this is, yeah, this is, um, you're correct, this is definitely not a, uh, this is not a, a great man or great person history about, uh, of, of color science. It's really not a book about great discoveries in color science, um, at least not on the part of Americans. Uh, so with the possible exception of Christine Ladd Franklin, who is a uh, color scientist that one encounters in this book, uh, Americans are not really players in, in the field of color science or physiological optics, at least not until uh, around the 19, uh, 1920s or so. Um, and one finds so really idiosyncratic readings of color scientists coming out of um, American scientists who are reading, again, works like, like Brewster's and Fechner, um, and trying to apply it to their surroundings. So um, Americans are not great great color scientists themselves, or, you know, in the great in the sense of, you know, making landmark discoveries or however we want to conceive of that. But they're real enthusiasts of the possibilities of color science um, for, you know, thinking about and modernizing society. What makes the United States such a, um, such a good place to look at the development of, of a science is precisely the, is precisely the fact that Americans weren't great color scientists um, or, you know, they, they, they didn't make sort of discoveries that, that shook the globe, but they uh, were fascinated with the ways and they were, they were um, enthusiastic about the ways in which uh, color could be used to, to define different forms of governance. So uh, they were fascinated, for instance, with the idea, and it's a very controversial idea in the 1860s in America. Uh, they were fascinated with the idea that a, a science of perception could exist at all, right? The idea that one could measure someone's subjective sensations um, implied all sorts of things about uh, constructing bureaucracies around uh, around thought, right? Governing governing thought from um, on an administrative level. This was not an idea that was initially especially well received. And so, uh, one thing that the book tracks is the ways in which you know, questions of what perception was like sort of sync up with questions of what the governance of individuals is like. Human scientists and physicians have often learned the most about human faculties by studying their dysfunction, always in ways reflecting prevailing social norms. Colorblindness figures prominently in Rossi's account, and I asked him to explain what his actors thought underlay colorblindness and also how it could be remedied. This involved some useful background on the trichromatic theory of color. One of the big questions that one has when one's trying to figure out what color is, is, um, and so what what the basis of color is. And so, of course, as many of us likely learn in elementary school, there are three primary colors, and those primary colors are uh, blue, uh, red, and yellow. Um, and the system by which they by, by which we can sort of ascertain that these are primary colors is because if you you know mix say blue and yellow paint, you get uh, the color green, right? Uh, and blue and red makes purple, and uh, red and yellow makes orange, right? Um, so that's one way of that's one way of um, thinking about color. Um, the other way, however, is to think about color 
sort of as a product not of um, uh, not of the mixture of material things, but of the mixture of light in the eye. Uh, and in this case, and this was sort of the this was the innovation of physiological optics of the European variety that you had been uh, you've been referencing before. Um, and in this way, uh, first of all, the primary colors would be um, red, uh, red, blue, and green. Uh, and it's different combinations. It's in fact, in, under this theory, it's different combinations of wavelengths of red, blue, and green light that sort of are, um, uh, or, or rather there's, it's, it's incidences of red, blue, and green wavelengths of lights on the uh, cells in the, in the retina of the eye and receptors in the retina of the eye that combine to give uh, all sensations of color. Um, and this leads to some counterintuitive kinds of, uh, uh, kinds of questions. So for instance, if, um, you know, uh, under this uh, latter theory, which is called the trichromatic theory, under this theory of retinal receptors, um, well, we have these primary colors, the primary indivisible colors of red, green, and uh, blue, kind of a bluish purple, actually. Uh, but yet people still see yellow as a primary color, right? Um, in fact, if you mix, if you show someone a mixture of uh, red and green light, they'll, they'll often perceive it as yellow um, or, you know, or, or People with what we might call standard visual will perceive it as yellow, um, but of course one doesn't see yellow as a, as as reddish green. One sees it as yellow, right? Um, and so um, and so this was the this was the um, this was a sort of a, a dominant theory of physiological optics. And note what this theory does. Um, this theory shifts the um, shifts the production of sort of visual knowledge from from the objective world, the world of things. You know, to the to the eye of the to the eye of the viewer, um, and so this is sort of what's at this is the uh, what's at stake in sort of defining a subject in this way. Uh, so uh, the claim, or sort of the, the the nested subclaim that's being made here, is that if scientists can understand how the eye works, uh, then they can understand how vision works, and then they can actually understand how subjective sensations work. So they can understand how the stuff that we can't actually see um, still works in the, in the uh, I guess in these sort of perceptual systems or the eye slash mind of the viewer. Um, so that's what's at stake, at least in this, at least with the trichromatic theory, where uh, where colorblindness comes along uh, is first of all, um, it, you know, it, it tends to be viewed on the one hand as a case, as you said, a sort of Kangiemian case of anomalous perception proving the rules of normal perception, right? So um, one idea is that it's possible to um, uh, to query uh, to query the uh, to query people who have uh, color perceptions that vary from that of the, the the putatively normal, and to ask you know and to and to sort of show them a color, ask what they see, and then calculate uh, calculate how that color is shifted, and thereby to sort of prove the the rules of trichromatic theory, right? So uh, the idea is that if a person is colorblind in some ways, they might have one of these three red, blue, and green receptors will be um, uh, not functioning or functioning differently than, um, than it would in other subjects. Um, and so, you know, colorblindness becomes a, a useful proof of trichromatic theory. Um, more broadly, though, uh, it becomes a, the, one, one sees that the sort of the study of colorblindness becomes sort of its own um, uh, becomes its own sort of reason for existence, right? So, um, in fact, it turns out to be very difficult to study how people how people see um, 
subjectively because, um, well, for all sorts of reasons, your reported sensations are actually very much more than the theory would have suggested. Um, people, uh, people can be, uh, people can, as in this, there's this whole, there's a whole case among rail engineers. So one of the big sort of legal fears of this time or the regulatory fears is that, you know, if a rail engineer, the theory goes, if a rail engineer can't see, can't tell the difference between red and green, um, then they could cause an accident, right? So on the one hand, the idea that there is a sort of form of anomalous vision, a sort of form of subjective inner sensation that nevertheless is, can be revealed to the scientist, even if the viewer themselves did not want it to be seen, uh, is an extremely powerful regulatory mechanism, right? Um, and so one, one sees a, we see a movement uh, to have just a regularized color blinding, blindness testing across rail lines, uh, sort of towards the end of the 19th century in the United States and actually in, in Europe as well. Um, at the same time, one of the um, one of the more fascinating discoveries I made was that this this regulatory effort made sort of uh, made fairly rigorous philosophers out of uh, out of a number of groups like like for instance rail workers themselves. Um, so rail workers themselves who found themselves uh, you know, in danger of having their their very sensations regulated um, by scientists, right, and being told, well, you know. Um, you might say that you can distinguish between red and green, but I can prove that you can't, you can't see this. Um, you know, start to make these very, uh, very detailed sort of epistemological arguments about what it means to see color. So they'll say things like, well, um, even though you know, your test, even though this sort of trichromatic theory or tests based on this trichromatic theory, uh, say that I can't see red and green, nevertheless, I can distinguish between red and green rail signals, right? I can pragmatically distinguish between red and green uh, and therefore, you know, what does it mean to see color at all? If, uh, if I can functionally distinguish this, how is this, you know, how is this a, a color anomaly? Um, and so in this way, you see, you see the, um, the, uh, the discovery of colorblindness as a, as a widespread affliction and as one that has a physiological basis um, because it's sort of justification both for color science itself as well as for um, its importance in you know, regulating industrial activities like rail and steamships. Yeah, you wish they had just, you know, made cyan lights instead of green lights, right? <laughs> One does, right? <laughs> Many of the figures in Rossi's account appear in the guise of citizen epistemologists, but there are some major figures in the history of philosophy as well. I asked Rossi what role the pragmatists play in the Republic of Color. So I have a chapter in the book about the... Uh, um, the uh, American pragmatist philosopher Charles Sanders Peirce, um, and so Charles Sanders Peirce is, you know, sort of known as the uh, as one of the sort of originators of this American school of philosophy called pragmatism, or he, he would later call it pragmaticism. But uh, I'm going to stick with pragmatism just because it's <laughs> it's a less uh, a less ugly word to say. Um, but uh, so so Peirce's pragmatism is. Um, it's really a way of, as, as, you, as you allude to, sort of understanding belief and understanding how we come to belief, uh, how we come to believe certain things, um, both individually and as, as communities. Um, and one aspect of this is that Peirce is known as sort of the developer of uh, semiotic, which he calls the science of signs, which tells us, you know, how like different signs relate to other signs. So he has these ideas of, you know, some signs carry our are symbolic in nature, you know, like, like words or, or examples of symbols, you know, some signs are indexical. Like if you see a, 
Uh, you know, classic examples, if you see smoke in the air, that's an index of fire somewhere. Um, you know, in some classes, some signs are iconic, you know, so we imagine, um, you know, the, the outline of a fish outside a fish store or something like that is an icon of a fish. It doesn't really look like, there's no fish that it actually looks like, but it's understood as a fish, right? Um, and so this is, this is what Peirce is known for and, and his, you know, his, his semiotic gets very arcane and it in fact involves an ontology of, it's not just a sort of uh, Saussurean idea of language and symbol use. It's actually really an ontological system. So Peirce is very clear that his semiotic is a system, like it, it describes how the world comes into being, right? Uh, so for him, you know, as he says, matter is a feat mind, like everything is symbolic. Um, not, not in a relativist way. Like he really believes that sort of the world is the stuff of the world is, uh, constructed from semiosis. Um, and so one of the, uh, exciting discoveries of this book was that, um, one of the ways in which Peirce arrived at his sort of, uh, semiotic pragmatism uh, was in fact through experimenting with color, uh, and with color science. And so for Peirce, color was this uh, example par excellence of, of the way in which something that is, that is ephemeral, an idea, could sort of emerge into, into sort of actual being. Um, and so he spent a lot of his time, uh, and then uh, he spent a lot of his time testing his, his idea of, of semiotic using sort of psychophysical trichromatic theories of, um, of color perception. Um, and so, you know, one thing that this would involve would be uh, sort of figuring out like the logic and mathematics of color relations. Um, you know, the other thing that this would involve was sort of thinking through different degrees of uh, different degrees and types of colors, right? So trying to the, trying to come up with uh, schemes for understanding like, well, what is it, you know, so what does it mean to see a color, right? Um, and, you know, what does it mean to call a color, say purple or something like this? But yeah, so, so uh, suffice to say that, um, that person was very at a, at a very early age, uh, very early on, his sort of thinking about semiotic um, was uh, initially fascinated with psychophysics. So this this sort of study of uh, the uh, the sort of study of trichromatic theory and study of the ways in which the the eye and, and the eye and mind combine to form colors. Um, he actually quickly gave up on uh, he quickly gave up on psychophysics as being too like overly mechanical, right? Whereas he was really like, you know, he wasn't just interested in sort of the physics or psychology of color. He really thought of color as sort of the, a baseline way of thinking about the ways in which um, the world emerged from conditions of possibility. Here's a good example of Peirce's sort of pragmatist ontology, right? He's sort of thought about the ways in which conditions of possibility, like the possibility of something being read is sort of this first order possibility of the world. Uh, and then we have the sensation of something being read, which is like sort of a next level what first we call second is this next level of reality. And so, you know, so in order for something to be read in the world, it must have the possibility of being read first. And then when that possibility is realized as a sensation, um, that is sort of a second order possibility. But then, and this is where Peirce takes this extra semiotic step, but then Peirce says that, you know, but then actually the realizing that the thing that we're seeing is read uh, and calling it red over and over again, you know, calling the same kind of thing red over and over again, that's where really like sort of reality emerges. And, and for Peirce, the same thing was true of physical laws, right? We observe and classify things the same ways over and over again, and that thing becomes a habit. And then that habit is what eventually we call a law. If Peirce is at one end of Rossi's spectrum of color scientists, the board game magnet Milton Bradley is at the other, 
and I asked Rossi what role he played. One of the big and unexpected movers of uh, color science in 19th century America was was Milton Bradley, you know, again, the person who made uh, made his fortune selling board games during the Civil War. Um, was, his real passion was, was educational reform and especially um, early childhood education. Um, and again, for exactly the... Um, for exactly this reason that I sort of discussed before about you know the idea that well if we if we can't even see color correctly right if we can't even understand that the thing we think of as yellow is actually red and green then how can we possibly hope to sort of have a scientific polity um, this question is what attracted sort of educational reformers to color science as well um, and so for Milton Bradley um, this you know, this thing that he called the color question was of of vital importance so it was vitally important. Uh, not simply to understand color scientifically, but to make sure, you know, the, the general citizenry of the United States, you know, were inculcated in a sort of way of thinking about um, both of thinking about their own sensations as sort of having a, a scientific knowability, but also of having, I, I suppose, a, a faith in, uh, and in fact, in some, in some ways, uh, imbibing the guarantee that science will, um, that science will, serve as a useful, useful basis for, you know, reordering a, you know, a rapidly industrializing society. Um, and so to this end, after, uh, after having made his, his fortune in board games, uh, Milton Bradley largely turned the company over to, um, to making, um, uh, making sort of artifacts for teaching children color. So standardized, uh, standardized charts or standardized reams of paper, uh, each named, again, you'd asked the question about standards earlier, uh, so Milton Bradley was sort of on the forefront of this standardizing idea, you know, that so you know, he would sell reams of paper that we were guaranteed, you know, the, the orange that was labeled, you know, um, you know, O5 or something like this would be the same orange. Every O5 would be the same no matter where you got the paper from, right? And you could teach children to see orange that way and to sort of understand the way that orange varies from, you know, in degree from different kinds of oranges and the ways in which colors mix. Um, and all these were, again, based on this idea of, um, this idea of physiological optics, this idea of sort of trichromatic color theory, um, but also based on the idea that um, um, that again, this this kind of exercise was was not only useful but sort of vital to the um, vital to really to the functioning of the republic. The Republic of Color also concerns how color perception figured into anthropological theories of civilization. So one of the arguments of the book is that, um, and one there's a chapter of the book dedicated to this, um, is that we often we often think about color as cultural, right? So um, as something that's culturally determined, you know, and so this can go in many different ways, right? So uh, this could be, you know, the idea that, uh, particularly the idea that different cultures read different significations into colors, right? So um, uh, one of the arguments of the book, and one of the one of the discoveries of the book. Um, is that bef- is that for this for this very idea of us? We have this idea that there are multiple cultures, and that sort of um, you know the the sort of the idea of multiculturalism, and certainly the the idea that has held sway in much of uh, American anthropology anyway since you know uh, since the nineteen twenties, if not before, is this idea that you know that there's no real hierarchy of cultures. Right, it's just one group of people does things differently from another, but that doesn't mean that they're more or less advanced. Um, one of the discoveries of the book is that this idea or one of the early proofs of this idea actually comes from 
the study of variable color perception among uh, among different groups of people, you know, particularly as it was articulated uh, in the 19th century, you know, between groups of the the notionally civilized and the notionally you know barbaric and savage. Um, and so the short way of the short way of saying this is that um, you know for certainly for much of the 19th century, American anthropology, um, such as it was, had an idea of culture as being fundamentally developing in a sort of unilineal direction, right? So the idea is that culture passes through different phases. You know, the topmost phase is that of civilization. The second phase is that of barbarism. And the first phase is that of savagery. Um, and so, you know, the, the project of sort of, of figuring out where and how different groups of people fit on this sort of, this ladder of, this ladder of culture, this ladder of civilization, um, was one that preoccupied uh, uh, American anthropologists in one form or another. Uh, through much of the 19th century. Uh, now, one early discovery or one early sort of uh, insight is that, uh, is that different groups of people don't speak about color in the same way, right? And so um, as, as is often observed, you know, there are some language groups that don't really distinguish between green and blue. And so the question, of course, emerges, you know, is it, is it because people who don't distinguish between green and blue are less evolved? Than you know, than people that do uh, distinguish between green and blue, or is it because um, uh, is it because uh, uh, you know they aren't uh, they haven't ad- ad- they don't have an advanced sense of abstraction enough, uh, or you know, or perhaps they're they're sort of more prone to colorblindness or something like this, um, and so the um, and so right so so one theory is this idea that you know that uh, color perception hasn't evolved enough. Uh, uh, in people who don't distinguish, right, and so that, and so color becomes a measure of civilization in that case, right. So, uh, if you, the idea being that if you don't distinguish between uh, certain kinds of colors, you don't have a, sort of a full panoply of words for colors in your language, then you are then then uh, the civilization of the person who is, um, or the culture of the person who's being uh, is being examined in that way is is less civilized, right. Um, and so, and there's this other reverse idea, which is that, uh, and then of course, colorblind, when people start to do sort of uh, mass colorblindness testing, uh, it seems like the reverse phenomenon is in fact true. Um, again, I think largely due to sort of uh, uh, errors in test design and statistics and things like this. But um, the, you know, it seems that in fact, the, the, the notionally civilized are actually more prone to colorblindness than the than the notionally savage, and then in that case, sort of color, color perception actually becomes a, a sort of an inverse test for civilization. Similar questions about color, culture, and psyche were debated by educational reformers. Questions about the education of the senses gave way to a general shift within anthropology, away from a hierarchical model of civilizations toward a multicultural sensitivity spearheaded by figures like Franz Boas, for whom color perception was an important component in the idea of cultural relativism. You know, there, this also plays uh, plays into the the education that you were talking about earlier, the sort of educational norms. So, um, Munsell, who's one of these color standardizers, is also a color uh, educator. And there's a debate between uh, adherents of uh, of Munsell's school. So, Munsell has this idea that uh, you should use the Munsell system to teach. Uh, to teach children how to see color in uh, in gradual phases, right? So, you know, like he has this idea that the the small child can't handle really bright colors, 
right? And so you should use the, the Munsell's very carefully graded uh, middle colors, right? These sort of slightly less bright colors to teach children the names and how, to, how, how colors work, right? And he has this idea that, um, you know, he has, this, he has this idea that you don't, as he says, you don't scream in a child's ear to teach it how to speak and you don't give it uh, strong liquor to teach it how to taste. So why do we show our children bright colors in order to, um, you know, and so there's a, a similar idea of, you know, like civilization requires a sort of, you know, civilization requires you to be eased into, um, you know, eased into brightness or something like this. Um, and in fact, uh, to your, to your point, you know, Munsell's adherents are often in conflict with adherence of G. Stanley Hall's, uh, sort of idea that children have to be savage before they're civilized. So, adherents of Hall say that no, you know, they, they, children need bright colors early because that's when they're the most savage and then they civilize into sort of a more genteel kind of, you know, idea of, you know, more tasteful pastels or, or whatever. Um, all this goes to your point though, that, that, um, that, yeah, there's this, there's this idea of the ways in which color, color perception sort of equates to different degrees of civilization, whether, whether more or less acute. Um, and so there's this sort of running debate about whether and how this, this, these particular uh, alignments work. Um, and one of the insights of American anthropologists, particularly like Franz Boas, um, you know, Boas has this idea that, uh, that well, culture doesn't really, you know, um, cultures you know, or, or different peoples aren't really more or less savage or civilized, right? In fact, that, you know, all culture evolves sort of as a part of the exigencies of environment is more or less what he says. Um, and the way that he proves this um, the way that he proves this is again through recourse to the idea of, of color and color testing. So, um, again, what he says is that something to the effect of, um, you know, if you were to show if you were to show Boaz or me, you know, I'll, I'll be Boaz's ventriloquist. If you were to show me Boaz a a picture of a a, a swatch of slightly off white, slightly yellow whitish color and slightly blue whitish color, um, you know. Uh, and then you were to come back and ask me which one was which, what I had seen, you know, three or four days from them. You know, Boaz says, I would say white, you know, I'd say, I wouldn't really be able to distinguish between slightly yellow, white and slightly blue, white. Whereas a person who had spent their whole life in, in a culture in which slightly yellow, white had, had significant difference from slightly blue, white, um, would be able to tell those differences and remember those differences immediately. Right. And his point is that his point is that, um, the individual in the first case who wasn't able to distinguish wouldn't necessarily be more or less cultured or more or less intelligent or more or less, you know, capable of a, you know, various forms of technology or governance than the person who was able to distinguish. Um, they would just have different, different sort of modalities for seeing. Um, and so that gives, and so that's the sort of, uh, that is the, the genesis of, um, the genesis really of the idea of multiculturalism that, um, that we hew to now and the general the genesis of this idea that while well, different color, cultures have different views of color, but you know, they're all equally valid. And others adhering to multiculturalism wrote at a time when scientific racism was at its apex in Jim Crow America. Eugenicists bent color theory to their own ends and were particularly interested in standardizing the color of skin as an index of their hierarchical view of race. This was a clunkier version of color science than others, but sought to systematize judgments of skin color to aid a eugenic administrative state. 
Yeah, so the the book focuses in particular on uh, the work of the eugenicist Charles and Gertrude Davenport. They were the sort of leading uh, American eugenicists of, uh, or some of the leading American eugenicists of uh, of the late twentieth or late nineteenth and uh, early twentieth century. Um, and as with many eugenicists, much of uh, Charles and Gertrude Davenport's work was um, dedicated towards sort of figuring out. Um, patterns of heritability, heritability of traits, particularly heritability of traits that were thought of as racial traits. And of course, um, for the Davenports, you know, race certainly didn't, didn't begin or end with the color skin, but the sort of skin was the, the index of, of, of race and of, you know, qualities like, you know, uh, intellect and, and artistic capacity or, you know, capacity for aesthetic feeling and all this stuff could be sort of inscribed in skin color. Um, and so, you know, what we might call the, the Davenport's rather rather clunky and rather overt, but I think extremely telling innovation was um, to try to use color science as a way of measuring uh, degree of whiteness or blackness, uh, particularly uh, for the for the purposes of uh, for the purposes of, of a law. So figuring out um, you know the point at which a uh, a person becomes legally white. They base their system off of off the existing uh, infrastructures of color science of the time. So, uh, we've discussed how um, color education was a um, was sort of a big project of color scientists, right? Making sure that children knew how colors worked and how colors mixed, and in a scientific way. Uh, and so, one of the ways in which the Davenports undertook to measure uh, sort of a, a colorimetric notion of race um, was to take. Uh, a tool divide, developed by Milton Bradley uh, to teach children how to uh, how to see color, and this was a thing that he called a color top, which was basically like a top that you would spin with your fingers that had movable sections of color on it. And you know, if you move the sections of color around, you could create different mixtures of color because when you spin the top, the colors would blur together, right? Um, and so, this was a tool that you could use again to teach children how to how how colors mixed. You might put, say, yellow and red on this top and spin them to make to make orange, right, or something like this. Um, and what the the Davenports did was to redeploy this tool as a uh, as a measure of um, of skin color. And so um, they had this theory that there were they had this theory of four races, right? And the, the four races corresponded to colors: white, black, red, and yellow. Um, and they and so by adjusting patches of white, black, red, and yellow. Um, paper on the color top and sort of measuring the percent, you, you, you adjust these uh, segments of paper on the color top and then you would spin the color top or the eugenicist would spin the color top uh, next to the arm of a person that you were trying, whose race you were trying to test um, and the proportion. And when the colors match, you would sort of adjust the, adjust the colored papers. And when the colors matched, um, that would give you a, a measure of the, of the, of the person's race really. Um, and so you see this very, um, yeah. Again, you see this, this sort of very, uh, a very clunky notion of race on the one hand, right? But also um, a notion that sort of marries extant color sciences uh, into what were were uh, laws uh, laws against miscegenation, uh, laws of, you know which dictated the the rights of uh, people based on uh, their notional race. To what extent did attempts to standardize color succeed? Rossi shows that time and time again, 
color was recalcitrant in the face of definition. I asked him what we learned from his account on the whole. It, it leads us a couple of different places. So the book ends in the in the 1930s, when uh, with the development of the first sort of international international accord about color standardization. Um, and so this is the uh, this is the progenitor to the sorts of standardized color codes that that allow. You know, I'm looking at a computer screen right now, which has which is sort of based in you know has a, has a lineage. The colors on the computer screen are based in a lineage that goes back to 1930. Um, this sort of 1930-31 uh, color accord. Um, so the legacy. I mean, I guess the legacy is twofold. It's it's interesting. I think you know. I I think of. So to get at your question about eugenics and color science, uh, one way of thinking about it is that these are, is that these are both examples of, you know, notionally progressive sciences, right? Um, like, you know, science is founded on the sort of idea of, uh, on this idea of absolute knowability, absolute standardizability, you know, of the ability of science to come to terms with uh, human subjectivity, right? Um, obviously, rendered in very different ways uh, in the case of eugenics and color science, but, you know, but in ways that also intersect. Um, so in one ways, I think about the book as, as sort of a history, uh, a sort of a history of misguided optimism in some ways, you know, or, you know, I, I think one of my sort of fascinations in writing, writing it was just to see, um, you know, the, the, the hubris involved, with people who you know would sort of stride forward and say, "Well, this we finally got color," you know, like now, like now, I will tell you what color is, and I will also tell you about you know the way that society ought to work, um, you know. And of course, it, it just it never worked out that way. Um, and yet, it's also and yet it's also a story about these long tails, right? And I guess a little bit about the, um, you know, the 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 ways in which these sort of misguided misguided. Um, well, so it was both about the ways in which these misguided endeavors stick around again in the form of you know, things that are things that are, are, I suppose, technologically useful, like like computers or like you know, standardized printing technologies, and you know they, they certainly feed their way into into mass culture of all, all sorts. Um, but I think that I mean I think that one thing that gave me heart in writing the book. Um, was that as much as it is a history of, of failure and history of misguided technology and history of hubris, it also really is a, uh, it suggests, or suggests to me anyway, like sort of the um, much greater, much greater capacity and much greater possibility that we, that, um, that we could ask both out of, both out of science and out of the, you know, out of political worlds, right? So it suggests that in other words, the, um, you know, the act of seeing color Oftentimes, just seems so, so standard or so, um, uh, so beyond objection that it can't possibly be, you know, that it's just that's a baseline, right? Um, and so the idea that that the understanding of color that you know it's so objective, you can even put color in a computer, you can mathematicize it, right? You can model it in all sorts of ways. Um, nevertheless, it's just one of you know a seemingly infinite number of ways of understanding something very basic about. Um, about human sensation. And in fact, even the very basicness of color is by no means basic among all humans. And so um, it's very much a story which I'd like to think leaves like at least all of these huge gaps that we can you know, sort of occupy and 
populate and think through um, in ways that are much more productive than the limits implied by the science itself. To wrap up, I asked Rossi about his next project, which shifts from the organs of sight toward the elusive search for a language organ. One project is a book about the sort of the history of uh, the uh, the representations of the speaking body as uh, as it functions through linguistics, through like language research. And so, this is a book which uh, looks particularly at sort of um, graphic representations of speech uh, and thinks about them as uh, thinks about them in terms of of anatomies. So, for instance, you know the the uh, things about the human that underlies the the like syntax diagrams used in uh, 1960s generative grammar, for instance, and things about you know things about the um, vowel tracings and uh, used in uh, sort of 1900 speech therapy, um, and sort of tracks sort of evolving notions of you know what the physical speaker is or what the physical speaker looks like through these uh, through these visual technologies. Thanks so much for listening. This has been New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, a podcast on the New Books Network.